So we're in Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to do what I did last week where um, instead of reading the passage ahead of time and then talking about it, I'm going to do a pretty long introduction and then we're going to go through one verse at a time and just read it together. Um, Romans is all about the gospel. And Paul gives a pretty good summary of what the gospel is in the first few verses of chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. So that's the summary of what the Gospel is. That's what this book is all about. And then midway through chapter 1, Paul puts some structure into what's coming next. Um, he frames it in the context of two different revelations that are going to happen. In verse 16, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God of salvation. He says in verse 17, for in it, meaning in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and, and all that. So he, he puts some structure around what he's going to be writing about, and he frames it like this. God has revealed his wrath, and he's revealed his righteousness, and we're going to discuss both of those, but I'm going to discuss the wrath first. I just want you to notice those connecting words, because they're clues that help us to understand the structure of the passage. When he mentions the revelation, God has revealed his righteousness, then God has revealed his wrath. He comes back to this idea in chapter 3, verse 21, which where we're at next week, which is where we pick up. And notice in verse 21 of this chapter when he says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now that word manifested is not the same word as revealed, but as far as I can tell, they mean the same thing. So he's coming back to what he said before. So he's saying, here's the structure. We're going to discuss God's righteousness. We're going to discuss God's wrath. But first, the wrath. And then we're going to get to the righteousness next week in verse 21. So that's the structure. And Paul's really just kind of masterfully laying out the case here and starting with the bad news. Like I asked the kids earlier, the reason why is because it's like a story. If you don't get into the story where you know the characters and you understand the conflict, you can't really buy into it. You're not interested and you can't follow it along. And so you get to the end, you get to this climactic moment, you're talking about the crucifixion and Christ and all he's done for you. And if you don't have any investment in that story up to that point, you're like, okay, some dude died. Big deal. So Paul really wants us to understand the nature of sin and our part in that and our responsibility in that and the consequences of that so that when he mentions the righteousness of God and how it's given to us, we're invested. We're into the story. It makes sense to us. So um, the title is technically um, The Gospel of Man, Part 3. This is the third part of Paul's kind of walk through the, the mess that mankind has made of the world. But I could have used some different um, titles for these three last teachings, including today. I'll give them to you now just to kind of help you know where we're at, but don't try to write them down. If you want them, I can give them to you afterwards, but a few weeks ago on the Gospel of Man Part 1, 
we looked at the progressive degradation of man's spiritual condition, which is a mouthful, but that's what Paul's going through as he's talking about in Romans 1, the origin of sin, where it came from, what happened originally, and then how that's played its way out in all of history and humanity and why we continue to get worse as a people as we go along rejecting God, how sin gets worse, how our heart and our mind and our soul are degrading um, because of that rejection of the truth. And then the second week was how God's judgment is right and impartial. That was last week, how we talked about whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter what good you think you've done in the world, God's judgment is right on sinners. Whether you knew because you read the scriptures or you knew because God wrote his law in your heart, all of us have a sense of morality and none of us follow our own sense of morality. So even if you've never heard the gospel, if you died and went to heaven and God... Well, if you died before the judgment seat and God said you can't get into heaven because you're a sinner, he would be right to judge you because you disobeyed the law he wrote in your heart. So that was last week's thing about God is right for judging sinners. And he's impartial. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're not a Jew. It doesn't matter how you grew up. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Um, today's point could also be, instead of calling it the gospel of man, part three, could have been, the whole world is accountable. That's kind of the main point as we get to the end of this chapter in Romans 3, when he says in verse 19, sorry, not the end of the chapter, the end of this part of the chapter, in verse 19 when he says, um, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. So that's kind of the main point of, of today's teaching is really kind of summing up all of what Paul has been saying, really driving it home. And the goal is to get us to understand this, to really get into the conflict, to get into the story and see it properly from God's perspective. And unfortunately, most of us, myself included, we don't like accepting blame. We'd much rather make excuses, right? If there's any way out of this that makes me look at all better, I'm going to definitely mention that thing. Well, you don't really understand because, because you know, my, my upbringing was this, or you don't really know what I was going through at that time, or we want to make excuses. And so what Paul's been doing, starting in the last chapter, and he kind of continues this week as well in chapter 3, is kind of going through some of the excuses we might make and what excuses he expected the church in Rome to make when he was writing this and um, kind of handling some of those excuses and explaining some of them. Um, so he's removing these excuses so we can, um, and we might be able to actually relate with some of these excuses that we discussed last week and, and also this week. Um, and the point, again, is like, it's just so important for us to get through this rightly so that we sense the desperation, we sense the urgency, we sense our need for a Savior. Um, that way, when the righteousness of God is revealed, we can rejoice and we really understand how, how precious it is. So let's just go into it and, and start in verse 1 in chapter 3, and we'll just start going through this together. So in 3 verse 1, Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? So coming from the previous chapter, the last thing Paul was talking about was the Jews and, and how they should have been able to do better because they knew the law. But they couldn't even follow their own law, and they gave God a bad name among the heathen because if they, if they don't even fear their own God enough to follow his commandments, why would anybody else do so? And so, no matter how well you've tried to live your life as a Jew, if you had all the law back then, if you had everything that you needed to know to know who God was, 
and you broke any of those points, you were guilty of it all, and you couldn't be good enough. So the Jew, reading this, going, well, then what's the point of even trying? What's the point of even being Jewish? Like, why even try to follow? If, I, if no matter what I do, I'm not going to be good enough, what's the point? So these excuses from last week, let's recap. The Jew, the Gentiles, had this excuse to say. It's not fair for God to judge me as much as he judges the Jews because we didn't even know your law. We weren't the chosen people. We were over here in these pagan lands living our own life, and it's not fair that we would be judged. But Paul said to them, no, because God wrote his law on your heart, and you broke that, so you're guilty. The Jews' excuse was, it's not fair that we'd be judged equally with the Gentiles. We at least tried to live a better life. We at least tried to do some of the things. It's not really fair. And Paul said, no, you're still guilty because you, you sinned. And if you break any of the law, so those, that's where he, they're coming from. So then the question is, well, then, you know, what's the point? If I'm not better than a Gentile anyway, maybe I should just give this whole Jewish thing up. And then Paul answers in verse 2 and says, no, great in every respect. Uh, the benefit of being Jewish was great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul's saying, here's what, why it was a benefit to be a Jew. The oracles of God, that, that basically means the revelation of God, the scriptures, the fact that in earlier times, it was hard to come by books. It was hard. You couldn't carry these things around in your pocket. They were hard to write, hard to preserve. Um, you know, very old, If you look at the history of writing on these old you know, parchments and, and how, the, how you know, we began making paper, but it was very, very hard, a lot bigger and heavier and, and, and more fragile back then and everything. Um, it wasn't like today where we all have books, we all have a Bible, we have multiple Bibles. It wasn't like that back then. Back then, even before we had writing, it was the Jews who preserved the history of God's plan of redemption from Genesis all the way through to Moses before anything was written. They told these stories to their children. They memorized even the genealogies, forced their kids to memorize this stuff. And that's also one reason why I believe it was so important to God in the Old Testament to tell the Jews, don't go and intermingle with these other pagan cultures and take on their gods. You have to stay pure because you are preserving my truth through generations. So that was... Yeah, so that was the benefit of being Jewish was that it was given to them, it was entrusted to them to preserve the truth of God. It's like the Barnes commentary says, to possess these was of course an eminent privilege and included all of the privileges as they, are, they instructed them in their duty and were their guide in everything that pertained to them in this life and life to come. No higher favor can be conferred on a people than to be put in possession of the sacred scriptures. It is the most valuable thing we have. And for a long time, it was only the Jews that had that. The interesting thing, though, and this is something that to notice, Paul doesn't give any other reason why it was a benefit to be a Jew. And this is partially why the Jews were so offended by Paul, because that can be interpreted as saying there is no longer any legitimacy to the law. There's no longer any need to follow those rules. And Paul was right. The, the, the moral law abides forever. Jesus re, uh, reaffirmed the moral law, don't, don't murder, don't steal, those kinds of things. But all these civil laws they would do as far as like what kind of foods they could eat and not eat, how much to give to the temple tax and the different kinds of things, whether you could shave your beard or not, and what kind of robes to wear, like all those different kinds of ceremonial and those civil laws and all the things that Jesus would do to, to stay pure and all the kind of stuff. Paul would say, in reality... Faith solves all of that. Jesus fulfilled all of that for you. 
He lived a perfect life, and when you put faith in Him, He gives that to you, and all your sins are forgiven. And so really, being a Jew in the legal sense had no more legal benefit to it. The only benefit Paul says here is basically it was entrusted to you to preserve these truths, to have these oracles of God. So the primary benefit he sees in being a Jew is that they had the Scriptures. Then Gentiles didn't have them then, but today it's a different story. All of us in this room and in this country can get a Bible. And if you can't afford one, the Gideons will give them to you for free. So you can get a Bible in this country for free. Um, so all of us are in the camp of the Jews in this story as far as being, um, being without excuse because all of us know the law of God. We can all get Scripture, but we all don't obey it. So we've all heard the truth. We all have access to the truth. And so we might ask the same question. Well, what's the point then? What's the point in having all these Scriptures if I'm never going to be good enough, if by reading them and memorizing them I'm not going to ever be good enough to be acceptable to God, my works can't get me to heaven, then what's the point of even reading this stuff? The answer is the same. Great in every respect. Because the Scriptures are not just law. Paul is going to use the Scriptures, in this book especially, to show us the path to life. To show us God's righteousness being manifested apart from the law. It's going to show the plan of salvation. It's going to, be, it's going to show us Jesus. The Bible isn't just law. It's the story of God's faithfulness through all times. And you can tell that Paul is getting at that idea of how it reveals God's faithfulness because of the next verse. If you look in the next question he tries to answer when he says, um, What then, if some didn't believe, will their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? So he's getting at the fact that the Jews were given the oracles of God to preserve. The main thing these scriptures reveal is God's faithfulness to us despite our rejection of Him how faithful He is through all generations to continue to chase after us and to offer us new ways to get back to Him and to give us His Son as the means of salvation. So it is greatly beneficial to have this book even if we can't obey it perfectly because we're not expected, well, we are expected to obey it, but God knows we're going to fail. And this book reveals a plan of salvation that's totally apart from our, our works. That's why it's, it's still important. So um, we shouldn't throw up our hands and give up and say, what's the point? Because this is just the beginning. What Paul's laying out here is the conflict. He hasn't even gotten to the resolution yet. So let's go to verse 3 now. Um, this next objection. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So again, the Scriptures reveal the faithfulness of God. Just because some of us haven't believed, just because some people in America have access to the Bible and don't believe it, doesn't mean that we should not believe in God. It doesn't change God's faithfulness. Let God be true and every man a liar. So you ask the question, what's the benefit of having the Bible because we can't follow it perfectly? Or what's the benefit of having the Bible because some read it and don't believe it? Or you might hear an atheist say, I've read the whole Bible and I'm still an atheist. And you might say, well, what's the point of having the Bible then? The Bible is still true and the God of the Bible is still true and He is still faithful whether or not those that are reading it believe it. 
Now when he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, that verse comes from Psalm 51.4. And if you don't know that psalm, it's a very famous psalm. They believe it's a psalm that David wrote after he sinned by having an affair with Bathsheba and then killing Bathsheba's husband and that whole thing. And then he gets um, confronted by this prophet, the whole story of, you know, I'm, here's a story, O King David, a man had one sheep and he loved this sheep and someone else had all these sheep and he that whole, gets into that story and then at, at some point this guy robs this man of his one sheep and David goes, um, or the prophet asks King David, you know, what should be done to that man who stole this one poor guy's one sheep and King is really offended. That man should be, you know, punished and uh, to the umph degree and the prophet says, David, you're that guy because you could have had many wives and you stole this guy's one wife. You're guilty and David then convicted writes Psalm 51. In Psalm 54, 51 verse 4, he says, you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, comes right after he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So it's David saying, I am taking complete blame for my sin and your judgment is right to fall on me. What you say against me is true. And so uh, Paul here is reiterating that, saying, so... If some people didn't believe, that doesn't mean God's not faithful. We have to take ownership for our own sins here. God's not at fault because we can't obey Him. It's not God's fault that we've rejected Him. It's on us and not God. Okay, so the next objection he handles in verse 5, this is kind of a tricky one, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? I'm speaking in human terms. Even Paul's embarrassed to even say this. He's like, this is really human terms, so this isn't very, a very spiritual thing to say. But here's the argument. Okay, so if you're saying that God is still faithful despite my sin, and if you're saying that the book of the Bible, the Scriptures, still reveal God's faithfulness even if I don't believe them, if you're saying that God can still be right and righteous, and if you're saying that God is going to reveal His righteousness somehow even though I've totally sinned, well then, could it be said that my sin helps God to seem great? If God has this amazing plan of salvation, if you think about it, if I had never sinned, if none of us had ever sinned, then God wouldn't have had to send His Son to die for us. And we wouldn't have this plan of salvation. So really, the fact that we glorify God and thank Him for this plan of salvation, God's gotten me to think, because if I hadn't sinned, He wouldn't have had to do any of that. That's the argument Paul's ridiculously um, fighting against. It's a very foolish argument to make. But still, he's going to handle it. Verse 6, May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? So if this were true, then no one could be judged. Imagine that, some, that you let someone borrow something of yours. They're careless and they break it. And they don't have money to repay it. So they come to you and they're very apologetic. And they're like, oh man, I broke this. I can't afford to fix it. Like, what can I do? I'm so sorry. And you say, you know, don't, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Imagine that person says, well, you're welcome then for giving you an opportunity to be merciful. That's basically what they're saying. So this is foolishness. If this is the way the world thought, then no one could ever be judged for any crime. A criminal would come in and the judge would thank them for the opportunity to be merciful and let them go mercifully. 
So here again, it's kind of like a last attempt at us to try to get any credit out of this, right? So our good works aren't good enough to get into heaven, whether we're Jew or a Gentile. And after all the excuses, we still have to come to this, this fact of it's not about us. We can't earn this. We're not going to be good enough. We're not going to make it on our own. So it's kind of like a last attempt to feel good for ourselves. Well, at least I gave God an opportunity to be merciful, you know. And Paul again is saying wrong because he's still going to judge the world. So the plan of salvation is not going to be universal. There are some who are not going to get it. So if you can't get it, and not all are going to get it, and you don't get any credit for it, this is getting kind of interesting now. Now the stakes are high. How do I get this thing? That's going to be next week. All right, so then um, Paul kind of lumps together a couple of additional um, excuses that are all kind of related to the last one in verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So because of what Paul's saying about how believing in Jesus and putting faith in him nullifies the law, it's all been done for you, they were accused of saying, let us do evil then, that good can come. Only more good can come from evil. The more evil I do, the more God's got to forgive me and praise God for that. So I've got to keep doing evil. To, that's, that's what they were accusing Paul of believing. And Paul's saying, no, their condemnation is just to think that. So the main point is, God gets all the credit, all the glory for this plan of salvation that Paul is laying out here. That's why he says at the end of this section, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You can't be good enough to earn your salvation. And if you have salvation, it's not because you were good enough to get it. No flesh will be justified in his sight. So Paul reminds him that, that um, we who are saved, because he's writing to the church here, are not better than those who believe such things, who still make excuses for their sins, and who haven't received God's salvation. We are not better it's not that God saw something special in us that he didn't see in others. Maybe you've heard that, you know. Well, I don't know what God saw in me to save me. Nothing. Except for you're his child and he loves you like the rest of the world. There are deep, hard questions about, well, then how come I'm saving somebody else isn't? But don't fall into a trap of thinking it's because something, something about you is awesome and God just, there's something about you that made him want to save you and not somebody else. You can't earn it. That's, we have to have that. We have to know that. All of us are sinners. So when he says their condemnation is just, he's saying the condemnation for everybody is just. We're all in the same boat together. We're all sinners. And so he concludes this section by really driving home these kind of main points by quoting a lot from the Old Testament. Starting in verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than, than they? And I've already explained this. No, we're not better than they. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So again, nope, we're not better than they are. As it is written, starting in verse 10, there is none righteous. This is kind of, this is the, if, you, if you're watching a movie, you know, and the conflict is like unfolding and unfolding and getting more and more, and you get to that breaking point where like, this is the moment where the protagonist has to solve something. It's all, the stakes are high. This is that moment. This is that pinnacle where it's like, you're going to either, die or live in this moment. This is that part of the story in Paul's 
discussion about man and sin when he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their lips. Whose mouth, their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That concludes the, the kind of like the death sentence given to mankind. Whether you know about God or don't know about God, whether you're a Jew, whether you're not a Jew, whether you grew up in church, not in church, however you've tried to live your life, if you haven't been given this plan of salvation, if you have not been saved, this is the death sentence on all of us. There is none righteous. No one does good. No one understands. No one even seeks God on their own. So verse 19, we know whatever the law says. It speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. This is an interesting point. And I don't want you to pass over it because maybe you've read this verse before. He's saying, oftentimes Jews would read this verse in their scriptures because it comes from the Old Testament. They think this is concerning the Gentiles. They don't seek God. They're all unrighteous. They're wicked. They're horrible. And Paul's saying, why would God write this to the Gentiles who are never going to read it. He gave it to you through one of your prophets, and it's about you. Because the Jews would have not, or the Gentiles wouldn't have read this. They didn't have the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul's saying, He wrote this to you who are under the law. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So this is for you. Again, no excuse. So if it was up to us in our works, even if we're in church hanging out and singing songs and all that, if it was up to us in our works, this is us. We're not good enough. We're not going to make it on our own. And the point Paul is making when we come to the end of this section, in verse 19 and 20, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Remember before I mentioned this whole works-based salvation thing where Paul was kind of saying for a second, you know, theoretically, if you could just be completely obedient to God's law, you'd have life. That's the, the covenant of works. So theoretically, it should be possible for us to gain God's favor and have eternal life if we could just be obedient to everything. But the problem is, that's only theoretical. In practical terms, we cannot do it. That's why it says here, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Sure, theoretically, it could be possible based on this covenant of works. But in practicality, no one's ever done it. And as you get into chapter 4, Paul's going to explain how even those in the Old Testament who obeyed the law or tried to, he's going to show how they weren't even justified by that. They were justified by faith, just like we have to be. It's always been faith. Even in the Old Testament, when they thought they had to obey these laws to be saved, it was the faith that was saving them, not the laws. And that's what Paul's going to demonstrate. So, um, by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. So, the good news is coming. Thank God that this isn't the end of the story. But, the rest of the story has to be built on this solid foundation. And I would just beg you to really understand this. 
And that's why we spent three weeks on it when I could have read fast and done it all in one week. We've taken three weeks on this because there are many divisions in the church today, many denominations, and a lot of the division happens around questions of how does salvation actually work? Did God choose me first, or did I choose God first? And what did it take to be saved? Was it just the prayer I prayed, or did I have to also repent and never sin again? And did I have to get baptized before I was saved? And all that stuff. And we can continue to discuss those things, and I wouldn't mind spending the rest of eternity trying to figure out how this all happened. But we have to be unified on the fact that if you are saved, you don't get any credit for it. God wants all the glory for your salvation. He's not going to give you room to take any credit for it. So when you give your testimony of how you got saved, I would urge you to avoid things like, well, I just realized that I had to do something with my life, and so I just started going to church. I read the Bible. I decided that. I wanted to... No, your testimony should be what God did in your life to bring you to Him. And if you don't see your own testimony that way, pray through that, because at the bottom of all this, God gets the glory for our salvation, not us. We have to be unified on that. Whether you believe in predestination, whether you believe in free will, whether you believe something else, we have to be unified at this foundational level of it's God who gets the glory. We aren't saved by works. So if you believe that you're, that about free will, that it's your free choice that saves you, you have to still work out a way for that to make sense in light of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that says we are not saved by works, but by faith. And that faith is given to us by God, not of works, so that none of us can boast. So I don't mind if you believe that, you, that we have free will and that you're saved by that free choice you made, as long as you're reconciled to the fact that it's not because you were just so smart that it just made sense and so it was your free choice and you just, you know, thank God that I'm so awesome that I figured this stuff out on my own and I decided to follow him. It's God who gets the glory for your salvation. It's Him who does the work. It's Him who begins the work. It's Him who ends the work. If you're saved, it's because God decided for some crazy reason to come down into your life and reveal Himself to you, and it caused you to want to repent and follow Him. And so, just a foreshadowing of next week, we'll read verses 21 and 22. We're going to read them again next week. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who... What? It doesn't say for all those who are obedient. And thank God for that. (laughs) It doesn't say for all those who follow the law perfectly. It doesn't say for all those who are Jews it says, for all those who believe, that's the key. God has made a plan for salvation. And if you unite with me in this understanding of our complete desperation and need for a Savior, then when we get to know this plan of salvation, whether or not you already know it, you're going to rejoice to hear it again and be reminded of it again. So look forward to next week. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for uh, the book of Romans. Thank you for inspiring Paul to write the words that he wrote for our benefit that we can still thousands of years later find the most meaningful, purposeful life. Um, Not because we're trying to be ancient or trying to be old school, but because these words are living and active and totally applicable and relevant to our life today and will continue to be in everyone's life for all time until you return. 
So help us to, to know this word, to really let these words get deep into our hearts so that it, it makes sense to us and we are humbled by it, that we're not judgmental because we recognize that it wasn't us that got saved. It wasn't us that, that figured everything out and, and fi- found a way to be pleasing to you, but it was you who saved us and it was you who made this work happen. It was you who gave your son. It was you who have given us this amazing plan of salvation. Help us to be humbled by that and to rejoice by that and just to be excited to follow you out of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.